Well, we're starting a new study today in the book of Exodus, so you could find it right there in your Bible. Start at the beginning, Genesis, and then Exodus, and you're there. And um, we're going to be looking at it under the title, God's Way Out, The Joy of Following. And uh, what we're going to see is that even in tough times, God's at work. He's at work in this world. God has a plan. And uh, our job is to trust God and to align our lives to live according to His plan and to help fulfill that plan uh, for our world and for the chur- our church and for our family and for our own life, that there is joy in following God. And God's going to use everybody in His plan one way or the other. Some people that don't even know that they're being used by God, others that are resisting it, but God's still using them. And uh, people who don't want to be doing what God uh, is telling them to do, they're still going to fulfill God's plan. They just don't know His joy. We have His joy when we align our own lives with Him and to say, as Jesus did, Thy will be done, and to follow Him. So we're going to see that God works in tough times. And uh, as we anticipate having some challenges ahead as a church of going through a a time of transition ourselves, uh, we can learn from the people here that were in this book. Because the story of Exodus takes people out of slavery in Egypt into freedom in the promised land. And it tells how they were enslaved and there was no way out. There was no hope. They were stuck. You ever been stuck? You ever got caught? I mean, felt like a turtle on its shell with your uh, legs all flailing in the air and you're not able to get things back to normal, back to what's right. Well, God came along when Israel was like that and made a way when there was no way. They escaped from slavery in Egypt by God's help and God's power. And God was fulfilling a promise He had made to Abraham 500 years before this. And He's at work in the affairs of men, even in the smallest details. That's just the way God is. I mean, He's smart and He's good and He's involved and He's engaged. And Exodus, the book of Exodus, is not primarily about Egypt and is not primarily about the children of Israel or even about Moses. The central character of the book of Exodus is God, and He's powerful, and He's purposeful, and He has a plan, and He partners with people, and God is still the same God today that He was back then. The Bible says God never changes. Yesterday, today, and forever, He's the same. The word Exodus comes from two Greek words, ek meaning out of, and hodos meaning road or way, so it's the way out, the exodus, the escape. You know what makes it a great escape? It was great because God was in it. It wasn't just human effort, though a lot of human effort was required. It was a supernatural escape. God's people needed a supernatural escape to get them back on track, to get them to where God wanted them to be. And they needed God's help. And we need God's help more often than we realize or care to admit. I mean, you might be in a personal jam right now. You haven't even told anybody Somewhere that you need God's help with a situation or a person or a problem in your life because you can't seem to solve it in your own strength. Now, honestly, our, com- our problems compared to a lot of Christians' problems around the world are flyweight compared to what other pressures other Christians are dealing with where they're being persecuted or even lives are being taken because they love Jesus just like you and I do. Great or small, here's the good news. Here's part of what we learn in Exodus. The good news is there's a God who hears. There's a God who cares. There's a God who revealed himself to his people. In fact, he gave them his personal name, I am. It means the one who is always present. It's the verb to be. It's emphasizing his commitment to be with his people. 
And even those who are stuck in a situation and not aware uh, that he's there, God is at work in the little details, in bringing uh, deliverance and redemption to his people, helping them escape. Now, the human instrument that God used in the book of Exodus was the person named Moses. Moses was born a slave in the land of Egypt at a dark time when the male babies were supposed to be putting, being put to death just because they were male. And Moses survived that. He went on to become God's spokesman to Israel as well as Israel's leader and organizer and judge and teacher. There has never been another person so gifted or so positioned to be used by God as Moses. As leader of, of Israel, he really was the king As the man of the word of God to Israel, he was her prophet. In fact, he's given credit for writing the first five books of the Bible. And as the one who interceded for Israel before God, he was the priest. So he was prophet, priest, and king to Israel. Now, the book of Exodus claims to narrate the events in Egypt and in the Sinai Peninsula over 3,000 years ago, actually about the year 1500 B.C., and over a period of time during two different pharaohs. And so it it covers a period of time, uh, Moses, uh, maybe 40 to 80 years. Most of Exodus is in that period. It tells about the birth of Moses, doesn't tell a lot until he has a crisis at about age 40, and then God calls him from the burning bush, which we'll be looking at next week, and when he was about 80 years old and said, I'm ready for you to come and to let my people go, tell, go tell Pharaoh. And Moses doesn't want anything to do with it. From the time that he goes back to Egypt and brings the people out into the wilderness and gets the instructions how to build the tabernacle is about 13 months. So the important matters to the author of Exodus is the events and their meanings What does it mean, and how do we uh, interact with God? And the matters of history and geography are secondary, but he recognizes the need for such references, and he adds them where they're important. So Exodus is telling this story of slaves escaping uh, slavery in Egypt and beginning their march across the wilderness to the promised land. I'm still amazed that they could do it without a pickup truck. No, I'm serious. Can you imagine moving that massive amount of people and all the older people and all the animals and all the babies and all the children without any mechanized vehicles? I mean, they walked to Mount Sinai to worship God and to receive the law and to gather instructions on how to build a tabernacle because God wanted to live among his people. And they got away from their enemies. And their story, unfortunately, includes their complaining and their bickering and their struggles and their lack of faith and their unwillingness to follow God and their wishing they had it the way they used to have it back in Egypt where they got to eat cucumbers and garlic. They didn't follow God willingly, so they weren't living in his joy a lot of the time. Exodus means an escape, an exit, a way out. It's called salvation and redemption. It tells how they escaped from slavery by God's help and God's power. It was God's way out. But this isn't only just the record of Abraham's descendants and how they got enslaved and then how they got free again. This is also the typology of all deliverance in Scripture. This is the epic story of the Old Testament going from slavery to freedom. Slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. The New Testament story is the same. People who are enslaved to sin, who are set free to live 
for Jesus Christ, set free by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to live as his sons and daughters. So we're going to look pretty quick here at Exodus chapter 1, but by way of background, 500 years before Moses was even born, God had come to Abraham, a man who, and he chose to have a relationship with him. And Abraham was declared righteous because he would hear God say some incredible things, and he believed God. And so he acted on them. He based his life on what he learned from God. And it says, God counted that toward him as righteousness. In Genesis 15, verses 12 to 15, it records this promise to Abraham. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and a great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried in a good old age." Well, Abraham went on, he and his wife, of course, to have only one, uh, one son between them, Isaac, which means laughter because they laughed at God's face when he said, you're going to have a baby in your old age. Isaac ended up getting married, and he and his wife had twins, Esau and Jacob. Abraham uh, lived long enough to see them become teenagers. And then Jacob had 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, their names, and he had also had one daughter. And uh, those brothers didn't always get along with each other. And there was one that was rather precocious, the 11th one, his name was Joseph. He would say irritating things to his family like, you know, I had a dream. You all bowed down to me. And so finally his brothers, who felt like he was dad's favorite anyway, got a chance to get even and settle the score, and they sold him into slavery, and he was taken with a, uh, some merchants to Egypt. He lived there for a while, pretty soon, for doing what was right. He found himself in prison, and he spent probably 15 years there in prison, but he had this ability to translate dreams, and it came to Pharaoh's attention when he really needed some dreams translated. And in one day, he went from being a convict to being the second most powerful person in the world. And Pharaoh put him in charge of a new plan that they were putting in place to save food, to save the world from a coming famine. That famine ended up dragging Joseph's entire family down to Egypt. They came down as VIPs because they were Joseph's family, and Joseph was responsible for warning everyone and then putting a plan in place to save enough food for seven years for the entire world. Well, then here is where it begins in Exodus. This is a whole new chapter. It's a new book. It's a sad part of the story, but God is at work. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Now then, there arose a king, a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to the people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramses, 
But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Israel had arrived in Egypt as a welcome guest, as free men, as equals. That was back during the time of the famine, but now things had changed and a new pharaoh has come to power who didn't know Joseph. At least he might have heard Joseph's name, but he didn't know the significance of Joseph, how Joseph had saved the world right there from his planning and preparations done in Egypt. And so they didn't know about his wise planning or how he had rescued everybody from mass starvation or they never would have forced his descendants into slavery. See, ignorance is a fertile field in which sin may grow. Oh, certainly sin is more than ignorance, but ignorance is, uh, is of the law is no excuse for breaking the law. Now, maybe they just stayed as guests too long. Anybody here have company that came and just stayed too long? So, uh, you know, maybe that was it. And... Um, you know, as they stayed, of course, they were living high on somebody else's hog, and, and they grew, and they became, well, they wouldn't. I guess it would have been somebody else's cow, huh? And they became a threat. In fact, at that time, about a third of the people living in Egypt were not Egyptian, and so that's where Pharaoh's cause for uh, concern for national security comes in, and he decides, I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to uh, enslave these people so they will not be empowered. They've come as welcome guests. They were not Pharaoh's possession or uh, property, but he comes up with this plan of forced labor. They were worked ruthlessly. They were made bitter with hard labor. The king enslaved them, and yet they continued to grow. So the king says, I've got to implement additional measures to curb this perceived threat. I want you to notice that this slavery did not catch God asleep. He had told Abraham that his descendants would be oppressed as slaves in a strange country. And God is working in the pushes and pulls of history, even though the people living right in the middle of it can't see all that he's doing and don't understand from the end, uh, the end from the beginning. There's no way of detecting his work. But faith believes that God is always present. And when they can step back, and we can, and look at how God was working, even in the darkest hour, God was at work, and he was uh, preparing those people to be set free. Even when Christ was here and uh, the dark days of the crucifixion, the Bible says God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Faith believes that God is always present. God's always working his plan in Egypt. He's working his plan at the cross. He's working the plan in your life and in mine. He's working his plan in our church. He's working his plan in the history of our world in our times. And in the story we're looking at, which is a lot like today, times were hard, and they were about to get a lot worse. Pharaoh became the persecutor of Israel. And they were in conflict. There had to be some kind of resolution, some kind of victor. Somebody was going to win. And Herod, uh, Pharaoh thought for sure it was going to be him. And slavery had provoked the visible Hebrews, and it also provoked their invisible, powerful God to action. King could see that despite slavery, they continued to grow, so he came up with a second part of his plan. Verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. 
But the midwives feared God. And they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are vigorous. They give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. He blessed them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let your daughter, every daughter live. So Pharaoh felt slavery wasn't getting it done. He goes to the midwife, says, kill every Hebrew baby boy that's born. Pharaoh didn't know that he's breaking one of God's fundamental laws. You shall not commit murder. I mean, the Ten Commandments hadn't been given to Moses yet. But they knew in their hearts that murder was wrong. God has placed his law in our hearts. So first there was slavery. And now death by the midwives. And then persecution by all Egyptians. All of that's initiated by Pharaoh. They were living in desperate, dark times. And yet God is at work. And Pharaoh didn't know what he started or that there would be a dreadful end outcome because God's reply was 10 plagues on the whole land and the last one being the death of the firstborn including the death of Pharaoh's own son these midwives had to choose they were forced into a spot living in a world that didn't believe in God and lived by different laws and different rules and they had to choose among their fears They've had one and then a second audience in front of Pharaoh who has been very clear to them kill the baby boys why aren't you doing what I told you to do? And they have to choose, are they going to fear the visible Pharaoh with his visible signs of his power? He's got soldiers, he's got jails, he can put them to death. Or are they going to fear the invisible God where they will stand for judgment before his face and he will determine their eternity? Faith sees the real power. Sight sees the immediate power. Sight sees Pharaoh. Faith fears God. The midwives feared God. And the lesson is obvious. You and I live in a world that's out of step with, uh, with God. To be a friend of the world is to be at, en at, at enmity with God. You can't, and you can't have both. Which one are you going to choose? Now, living what we know is more difficult. We're told to be in the world, but not of the world. To walk by faith is to see the invisible God against the visibility of the world. To trust the word of God against what the messages of this world are pounding upon us. To say God has given us his word. We're going to live by his word, even if it means being out of step. Even if it means being persecuted in our work like these midwives are. Or possibly even a higher price. This book of Exodus is full of God's providential acts as he fulfills his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and the people of Israel. And he doesn't deliver them so much out of life's hardships as through them. And maybe you'll see that he works the same way today, that you and I will pray, God, take it away, take it away. And God says, no, but I'll give you courage and strength, thrive and survive Move through those difficult situations for my glory and for your good. 
God used a tool that Pharaoh didn't even count on. He never saw it coming. It says in chapter 2, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. Now Moses is given credit for writing this story, and the part that he leaves out is, First, this woman conceived and bore a daughter. They named her Miriam. Nine years later, she conceived again and bore a son. His name was Moses, or his name was Aaron. Three years later, she conceived and bore this son, and his name was Moses. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Is there a mother alive that sees their child and doesn't think, this is a fine child? <laughs> Somebody showed me some pictures yesterday when we were having a beautiful memorial here for one of our saints, Marilyn Wareheim went to be with the Lord, and so we were celebrating her life, and somebody showed me a, a, a picture and said, this baby was just born recently. They're not nearly as cute when they're first born, but look at this one. And it was a proud grandpa, you know, showing a picture. And so I understood. And, um, <laughs> but she sees this child, and she said, he's a fine child. When she could hide him no longer, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch, put the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister Miriam stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman, women walked up beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then her sis his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now God used a tool that Pharaoh never counted on. The heart of a woman melted by a baby. Moses' mother, who was named Jochebed, was a brave woman to try to save her child and an intelligent woman to devise a plan, and she was a woman of faith, so much so that she and her husband Amram made the honor roll, in the, uh, the, uh, the honor roll of faith that's found in Hebrews 11 that Pastor Tandy started this worship service reading from. But in Hebrews 11.23, it talks about Moses' mother and father. She knew that the river flowed past the king's palace. She knew that the royal daughter would come out and bathe in the river. She knew that Pharaoh's daughter would recognize the child as a Hebrew. And the crying baby aroused her pity. So Pharaoh's daughter disobeyed her Pharaoh father, and she's used by God. Even without knowing that God is working in her, using her as an instrument of divine providence. So Moses grows up in his own parents' home, his parents being paid to care for him, protected by Pharaoh's decree, and he receives an Egyptian education. It were told in Acts 7 when Stephen was recounting the story just before he was stoned to death. It says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Notice the remarkable providence of God. At every turn, little and big, God moved his purposes forward, and he thwarted the evil intentions of the Pharaoh, who's unaware that God was using Pharaoh for his own purpose. Now, Christian, God is at work still in this world, and in our church, and in your home, and in your heart. So, 
He's at work even when we can't see him, even when we don't perceive what he's doing. So be careful. Don't go overboard to say, well, God did this or God did that too quickly because often we can't see the forest for the trees. We can't always see exactly what God is doing. It's, that's why it's important just to stay in touch with him every day, listen to his voice, and just do what he tells you. Now, we don't know where, but somewhere Moses got the notion that he was the man to deliver Israel from her oppression. It says, verse 11 of chapter 2, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me too as you killed the Egyptian? Well, then Moses was afraid, and he thought, Surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Stephen tells us that Moses was 40 years old when he had this midlife crisis and uh, that Moses presumed that God was delivering the Israelites by his hand and he was having to try to figure out how to set them free. He surmised that the Hebrews understood that God had appointed him as deliverer and they would recognize and appreciate his efforts and his leadership. It tells us in Hebrew, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Moses made a mistake. Two wrongs don't make a right. He sees a man that's beating on a Hebrew, so he takes things into his own hands, and this man gets killed. Now, God was going to deliver the Israelites by the hand of Moses, but God, God's will must be done God's way and in God's timing. And it's foolishness to presume that what's right in our eyes is God's will. We simply need to get in step with God and listen to his voice. And Moses was to be the deliverer and the ruler and the leader of the people, but he needed some education first. He needed 40 years in the big house of Pharaoh, learning how to organize and manage people, to master administration and law and the crafts and arts and skills and techniques of a highly civilized people. And he needed 40 years in the dirt to learn humility and survival, and the rough ways of a semi-arid country, so he'd be able to lead God's people through the wilderness. So he gets across the desert, and he's in Midian, sees a well, and he sits down there, and it says in verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs uh, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock then they came home to their father rule. He said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, well, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, hello, seven single girls, an eligible bachelor. He helped you out. He's the hero. Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may come and eat bread with us. And they probably went, oh, yeah. <laughs> and Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. 
And she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. I'm an alien. At that point in his life, we don't know, had Moses given up on his mission to deliver Israel? Had he gotten so discouraged with all that had gone wrong of, of living away from his family for 40 years because he had committed a crime and he's a man on the run and he's in hiding? So he gets married, he settles down, he becomes a shepherd, he starts to raise a family, his firstborn named Gershom, which in, implies a transplanted person or an alien without any rights. He seems to have lost his sense of mission, not realizing God's still working, God's still preparing you, God's still getting you through tough times. Just keep your eyes on God. God's getting you ready to do the work that he needs. So Moses received his BA in political administration from the University of Egypt, but he received his master's degree in desert survival in Midian, and he's now ready at 80 years old for the great mission of his life. Some of you have been getting ready a long time, and you think 80 is time just to relax and to settle back. If God's got you breathing, he's still got a job for you to do. So to be finding out what it is, and um, God has been getting him prepared, and Moses maybe was a slower learner, so it took him 40 years in Egypt and 40 years in Midian, 80 years of preparation, but now he's ready. You know, there's some lessons that you can't learn from a book. When I was getting ready for my ordination council to meet and to talk, they, they put together scholars and you have to write a paper and defend what you believe and base it on the Bible. And so I did all those things. And well, Dr. Bernard Ram was my advisor. He wrote about this many books, one of the smartest, if not the smartest person I've ever talked to. And he was on the committee and he would always ask the candidates the first question. And it was always the same question. But it would surprise the candidates because it was nothing that they had studied, nothing they had written. He would ask them, have you ever suffered? Have you ever suffered? Well, look at your own life. If you were to say, yes, I've suffered, how have you suffered? Like I said, we're, we're flyweight compared to what other people have suffered for their love for the Lord. But you look at how have I suffered in my life and what lessons have I learned from that? And in those tough times, did I reach out and call on the Lord? Did I lean on Him? Did I listen for His voice? How have I suffered? And God's grace is revealed in Moses because Moses was a murderer. And for that, he lived away from his family for 40 years. And yet, terrible as his sin was, it did not put him out of the purposes of God. God didn't say, whoops, I didn't expect that to happen. I got to start over with somebody else. No, God's grace covered Moses' sin, and he could still use this man. See, Scripture has a very hard line towards sin. Sin always leads to death. We always need a Savior. And Moses is a reminder that if God only used perfect people or spotless people, that there would be no one for him to use. And grace can forgive and cleanse and renew a murderer for the service of God. And if God could use Moses to do his work as a guy who had murdered somebody, he can use you. He can use me. And God never forgets a promise. He had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. And covenant promises are never forgotten so the story goes on in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. 
Here they'd had a change of Pharaoh, but no change of policy. The people had heard Pharaoh say they're going to be enslaved, and they're enslaved. He's told the midwives, kill the males. When that doesn't happen, he tells all the people, kill everybody you can who's Hebrew. And Israel cries out to God, groaning under the, the boot of slavery. They cry to a higher throne, the throne of grace. And the good news is God heard and God remembered his promises and he saw their affliction and God was concerned. He's aware of human suffering. And when God is silent, we end up concluding God is ignorant of human suffering or he doesn't care. He's indifferent. We wonder, God, where are you? How could you be so cruel? And yet God has his timetable and he's never late. You could trust him. And God's schedule included getting Moses educated in the desert and the death of Pharaoh in Egypt and having a people who were on their knees calling out to him saying, God, please help us. And God responded to the cry of his people. More than that, he acted because of his covenantal promises made to Abraham. He remembered his covenant. See, God had a plan to fulfill his promises and to rescue his people and to partner with people to do his work in the world. And God is still doing the same thing. He's still the same God. And right in the middle of it, Moses couldn't see what God was doing. He didn't perceive most of what was happening in him or around him or to him. But God was at work. It was God. And God's working in you too. And in your family and in your situation and in your church. You can trust God because God promised and he remembers and he delivers and he saves. And when you and I align our lives to be in concert with God, then we live in his joy. Just follow God. Shall we pray? God, these were dark times in the day of Israel. But they're remembered not just because they were dark, difficult days, but because you were there and you rescued your people because you care and you love, and you act, and you're still the same God. You care, and you love, and you act in our lives. And so I pray that we will be up to the task as we study these people. We will not make the same mistakes they have made. We will keep our eyes focused on you and to follow you in all things and through you to receive the victory. So lead us as your people. We love you. Amen.